0: Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays.
1: Acts chapter 17, 16 to 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the uh, the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as those in the marketplace day by day, with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him into a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what is this new teaching that you are presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what you mean. All the Athenaeans and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands, as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on the subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed, among them was Stiocinus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others.
0: Well good morning, let me add my welcome to Pete's, it's uh, great to have you with us this morning, we're going to spend um, just about the next half an hour looking at this um, little section of Acts together, this wonderful passage, Paul in Athens, Um, so you'll want to keep that open in front of you, and um, I'm going to pray for God's help as we come to look at it together. And so let's pray. Our Lord God, we pray that this morning, as we come to this, your word, the Bible, that you would make us a listening people. Help us to be those who hear your voice, who understand what you're saying, who believe it, and who put it into practice. In Jesus' name, Amen. How should the gospel be proclaimed in a sophisticated and post Christian society? Um, If I can put it like this if Paul the Apostle was invited to give a TED talk or to give a guest lecture down at one of the universities, what would he say? Uh, The society we live in can increasingly be described as post-Christian. Statistics suggest that um, involvement in um, church and knowledge of basic Christian teaching has drastically declined over the last 50 years. And so for many people, this culture would be described as post-Christian. And yet, interestingly, you couldn't call the culture we live in purely secular a survey for the BBC a few years ago um, noted that while affiliation to a church or religious group has declined significantly, that um, people um, 77% of people in Britain would describe themselves as spiritual or, or, or having some belief in a spiritual realm. Um, The sociologist Peter Berger wrote this, In the 1950s and 1960s, we all believed, that sociologists, that modernity would inevitably produce a decline in religion. That theory was wrong. Modernity has in fact produced an increasing plurality of religions, worldviews and value systems. And um, we see that, don't we, in our society. It's not that our, um, our sophisticated post-Christian society is less religious or spiritual necessarily. Uh, only that knowledge of the Christian faith and Christian teaching has been replaced by a sort of subjective and individualistic spirituality, the sort of pick-your-own spirituality of the marketplace. Uh, the person who says that they're, reli- uh, they're not religious, but they are spiritual. And if you've been with us in the book of Acts, we've been following the Apostle Paul and his team as they've been travelling around the first century Mediterranean and proclaiming the great news about Jesus Christ, really, to um, anyone who'll listen. Uh, We've been seeing the gospel, frankly, explode in the first century world. And here in Acts 17, we have recorded for us, for the first time in the book, a sermon, a talk, a speech by um, Paul the Apostle, to a group of people who you could call entirely non-Christian. They're deeply religious and spiritual, we'll see that in the details of the passage, but they are purely pagan. Whereas before we've had speeches to Jews and God-fearers, people who'd have some knowledge of the God of the Bible, some idea of what he was talking about, here for the first time we hear a talk to those who really would have no experience of the God of the Bible, And so there's much for us to learn here about what it looks like to proclaim the gospel in a post Christian society. Uh, It's also a sophisticated crowd that he speaks to. Um, He's in the Areopagus. Now, I had a debate this morning about how you're supposed to pronounce that. You can tell me afterwards if Areopagus is right, but that's what I'm going to go with for this morning. Um, It's a a bit like Parliament. It's both a place, Mars Hill in Athens. It's also the group of people who meet in that place. And the Areopagus were really... um, They were both the, um, the scholars and intellectuals of Athens, but they also had civic authority, over the city picture a sort of um, university faculty but also with authority to make laws and even to pass the death penalty that's about what we're talking about with the areopagus and here we have paul proclaim the gospel to them and so two questions for us this morning why did paul speak and what did he say So let's dive in. Why did Paul speak? And at one level, we can read the passage and we can see that it's tied up with Paul's circumstances. In verse 15, we're told that he was um, in Athens waiting for his two colleagues, Silas and Timothy. And of course, Paul was a great missionary. So in verse 17, we see him preaching both in the synagogue but also talking to people in the marketplace. And his circumstances in that sense led to this great sermon in the Areopagus. Uh, At another level, we might say um, the interest and also the derision of a group of philosophers led him to be there. Have a look at verse 18. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods, and they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Um, this is not, um, these are not flattering things they say about Paul here, are they? When they call him a babbler, the, the word literally means a, a little bird who picks at seeds, or like a magpie, there are a group of scholars who are saying, well, this guy, he's basically just sort of an intellectual seed picker. You know, he just picks at other people's ideas and we're going to take him up the hill to the Areopagus and take him to school. You know, there's derision, but, but there's also interest there, isn't there? Verse 21, all the Athenians the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. See, they loved to um, they loved to hear new things and play with new ideas, and so at that level, Paul's circumstances seem to le- lead him to give this talk. And yet, notice that that Luke opens the window on Paul's motives here, and so we see there's a deeper reason why he spoke. Verse sixteen: While Paul was waiting for them, that's Silas and Timothy in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now, anyone here been to Athens on holiday? Just give us a show of hands if you're brave enough here. And none of us will have been. Athens is an impressive city, right? And even more so in the first century. You've got the Acropolis, the Parthenon, the stadiums, the temples, an awe-inspiring place with much to look at. And not only that, but a world centre of culture and learning. You know, we're about 500 years after its high point, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, that sort of thing. But nevertheless the debt that we owe to Athens in terms of modern philosophy, architecture, art, math, science. This is an impressive place. And yet as Paul walks around, what he sees is not learning and culture and human achievement and great things, but verse 16, he was greatly distressed to see a city full of idols. Paul's not dazzled by the sights or delighted by the culture, but distressed, deeply moved by the idolatry that he sees. Now, what does that mean? What is idolatry? Well, idolatry is the Bible's word, really, for pick-your-own-spirituality. It's the word for putting the creator God to one side and having your own God of your choosing and devoting yourself to live for that thing that you've chosen, So it might be um, the God of another religion. It might be a philosophy or spiritual principle. It might be something in the world like money or wealth, success, family. But putting God to one side and living for something else. And when Paul looks around Athens, what he sees is not the great achievement, but the great idolatry. Paul sees with, with, with gospel glasses this city, and it moves him, it moves him to speak. Verse 16, he was greatly distressed. The word is, um, the word is a word for indignation. He was indignant at what they were done. Paul is so gripped by the God that he knows, the creator God, the God of love, the God who loves us so much that he stepped down onto the pages of human history and even went to a cross, to bear our sin and punishment and welcome us home. The one who rose from the dead in triumph, he's so gripped by that God that he cannot bear to see people push him to one side and go after other things. Can't bear to see people misrepresent him and say these things are better than God or these things are God. He just has to speak. And we see that in verse 17, don't we? So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and God fearing Greeks as well as those in the marketplace. You know, it's not just those in the synagogue who have some knowledge and have questions to ask. He's out there in the marketplace talking to anyone he can about this God. Deeply moved to see that the city was full of idols. Now, look, this is, um, is going to be my one reference to the World Cup this week, so I apologize on a sore week to mention it. But um, after, um, after Croatia beat England in the semi final, um, the, the next day the Croatian player said one of the things that spurred them on to beat England was the way that they felt they'd been misrepresented in the British media. They said they. They totally underestimated us. They talked about it like it would be an easy game. And so we were driven on the day. And here we see Paul looking out on a city that misrepresents and underestimates God. That says he's not worth living for. Or that these idols are God. And it moves him with indignation and zeal to want to speak to anyone he can. He can't bear the thought that people would push God to one side and run after other things. John Stott writes this in his excellent little book on Acts. Why is it that in spite of the great needs and opportunities of our day, the church slumbers peacefully on And that so many Christians are deaf and dumb, deaf to Christ's great commission and tongue tied in testimony. I think the major reason is this we do not speak as Paul spoke because we do not feel as Paul felt. And if we do not feel like Paul, it's because we do not see what Paul saw. I wonder what do you see when you look at the city of Sheffield and when you look at your neighborhood? Great human achievement, two great universities, spirituality, multiculturalism, many things to bang the drum for. When Paul had gospel glasses on, what he saw was people content to push God to one side and chase after other things, and he couldn't bear it. He had to speak. And my prayer this week has been that we would feel like Paul felt, that we'd see what he saw, so that we speak like he spoke. Why did Paul speak? Well, he was greatly distressed to see a city full of idols. But then, what did he say as he was brought before the Areopagus? Well, we're told in verse 18 that what he had been preaching was the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And here in the rest of the, um, the section, really we're going to have that filled out for us. What does it look and sound like for someone to stand up before an entirely pagan, non-Christian, um, <clears throat> non-Christian academia and preach to them Jesus and the resurrection? And I take it that what we're given in the rest of the section is more of um, the notes the outline of the sermon rather than every detail. Um, I know this because it took about two minutes to read out loud, and even for the Church of England, that would be a short sermon, wouldn't it? So here we're given the notes, the outline of the sermon, and, um, and if you've been with us through Acts, you'll know that Luke, he tends to abbreviate things that have been mentioned already. So for example, we've heard a lot about the cross from Paul, and we're told relatively little here. I take it that he spoke about the cross of Jesus, but we've heard it already and so Luke is filling out the particular things, the particular flavour of this talk when Paul speaks to those who don't know the God of the Bible. So what did Paul say? Well, his introduction picks up the spiritual searching of Athens. Have a look at verses 20, uh, verse 22 with me. Paul then stood up at the meeting of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. You see, Paul says you're a people who are very spiritual, very religious. You're a people who are searching but confused. Let me tell you about the God that you're looking for. I think of a a friend of mine after the birth of his first first child and he said to me, Andy, um, I don't don't believe in God but it was a difficult delivery and for those few hours I prayed to anyone I could think of that that little girl would be born okay. How wonderfully she was but Paul is saying, look, anyone you can think of that you're praying to, the one you're searching for, let me tell you about him. And his sermon really has two points. Uh, The first one was this, we have treated God shamefully. Paul says, we've treated God shamefully. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. Paul says, God is our creator and we've shrunk him down. We've squeezed him down. If, um, if I came round to your house for lunch today, thank you very much for the invitation. If I, uh, if I came and um, I pointed to a room in your house and I said, um, that's your room now. You live there. The rest of this place is mine, but you can have that room. It would be outrageous, wouldn't it? I certainly wouldn't be invited back, I would imagine. And yet Paul says, if there's a God who made every inch of our universe how dare we squeeze him into one corner and say, you live there and the rest of this is ours. And yet it's our universal religious instinct as human beings to do precisely that. God is our creator and we squeeze him down. Whether it's religious shrines or thin places in nature or churches and cathedrals, we point to places and say, that's the house of God. I hope you don't think that this bricks and mortar building is the house of God where God lives as if he wasn't present where you live and everywhere else. What an offense to God to suggest that we can shrink him down into a little corner of the world as if we could say to God that um, he belongs in the private sphere and not the public or he belongs on Sundays but not the rest of the week or there's some line between sacred and secular. God is our creator and we've squeezed him down into a corner. Verse 25, he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. God is our sustainer, says Paul, and we've patronized him. Just look at the extent of God's loving kindness and his generosity in verse 25. He himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. That breath that you just breathed, you breathed because of God's kindness and generosity to you. And that is true of everyone in the world. He gives us life and breath and everything else. And we've treated him like he needs us. I remember when I was um, in school, and um, before I became a Christian, having great debates about whether God existed and thinking I'd somehow be doing God some kind of favour if I chose to believe in him. How many people have said, of course God will welcome me because of my my giving to charity, or of course God will forgive me, that's his job. How many times as a Christian have I thought God must be jolly pleased to have me on his team because I come every Sunday. In his love, God gives us everything to enjoy, everything we need, and we patronise him and treat him like he needs us. Verse 26, from one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him though he's not far from each one of us. God is close to us and we've ignored him. He's close to us and we've ignored him. Have you ever known someone who only wanted to talk to you when they wanted something? Ever had a relationship with someone like that? They're happy to ignore you most of the time, but then they need something and suddenly you're their best friend. I wonder how that made you feel when they treated you like that. Paul says that God put every person where they are in the world, determined where they'd live so that they could know him and relate to him and yet we've been happy to push him to one side and ignore him. Been happy to look at our world and say I see no evidence of a creator God in the beautiful world that I live in. I've been happy to say of God, um, I, I don't need him. I don't see any place for him in my life. Been happy to say, I like to think about God like this or that. He's close to us and we've ignored him. And then finally, Paul says, God is our father and we've misrepresented him. Have a look at verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we're God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. See, God is our father. Paul says even the ancient poets of Athens knew that we were created for a relationship with God. There's a sense in which by creation, he is our father. The Bible says we're made in his image. And yet, we misrepresent him. We like to reimagine him. Rather than sitting on his knee like a child and listening to him describe what he's like, we say, I like to think about God like this or that. We choose a God of our own liking. We say, we human beings have explained the universe and we don't need God. We say, that's true for you, but not for me. He's our father and we've misrepresented him. Has anyone ever told a lie about you and defamed your character or misrepresented you? How did that make you feel? And yet here is God who made us in his image and we're content to say that he's like statues or pictures or books or films or like the God we've invented in our own mind. He's our father, and we've misrepresented him. Paul says we've treated God shamefully. And this matters because of his second point, which is that Jesus Christ will hold us to account. Jesus Christ will hold us to account. Look at verse 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere. To repent. For he set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all people by raising him from the dead. See, I think this is the surprise in Paul's sermon here. Because um, I've given a number of talks about the resurrection and um, I've talked about the resurrection as the evidence for Jesus. Uh, I've talked about the resurrection means that Jesus can offer us eternal life that goes through death. How the resurrection means that we can have new life as Christians and a new power within us to live for Christ. And all of that is biblical and true. But the thing that Paul focuses on here is that the resurrection is proof that Jesus will hold us accountable one day for the way that we've treated God. Paul says there is a day that is fixed. The judgment will be just. No one will be exempt. And the resurrection is all the evidence we need that God will judge the world. Now, how does that work? Well, for hundreds of years, God promised he would send a king who would be a forever king, a king over all people for all time. And what happened when that king walked on the pages of human history? If you've ever read one of the gospels, you'll know that Jesus's life was beautiful and good and kind and full of compassion and grace, but people didn't want him to be king over them. And so they crucified him. And maybe that's it. Maybe that's the end of Christianity. Maybe it's just hot air and supposition. But wait. Because God raised that king from the dead and exalted him to heaven to rule over all people, all the forces of evil, even death itself could not defeat this king. They killed him, but God raised him. And what that means is that the most important question you can ask in your entire life is this. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Because if it did, it means that he is the king who will hold every person to account for the way that we've treated God. If he did, it means that every other religion, every kind of spirituality and every form of secularism is to be rejected outright. And verse 30, he commands all people everywhere to repent. And repent simply means turn around. It means turn from treating God shamefully and cry out to him for forgiveness. Because you see, the king who rose again was a king who died and who has authority to forgive us by his resurrection. On the cross, this king took the punishment and shame for the way that we've treated God on himself and he rose again so that there could be no doubt of God's verdict on this one, so that he could welcome us home with open arms and Paul says, "The time has come to repent, to come back." Now, look, I just want to pause on this just for a moment, because uh, after the last um, after the last service, I had a conversation with someone, and they said, um, "Your sermon left me feeling really guilty." And I said, "Well, have you have you turned to Jesus? Have you asked him to forgive you?" And she said, "Yes, I have. I, I'm a Christian." And it left me thinking, maybe I, hadn't been, maybe I hadn't been clear. And so I want to be clear with you today. Because Jesus died and rose again, he has authority to forgive every person who comes back to him. Our guilt and our shame for the way that we've treated God washed away, born on his shoulders. And the king the judge standing next to us on the last day and saying, no one can accuse this person because they are my person. Imagine that, a judge who um, who stepped down from the throne, who bore our punishment, and who now says, you are mine if we repent and turn to him. Paul says, we've treated God shamefully, and Jesus Christ will hold us to account. So come back to him. Have him as your saviour and not your judge. And that is the message that he preached to a sophisticated and non-Christian, post-Christian, pagan society. And look at the responses with me just for a moment. In verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And look, it might be that you're here this morning and you're really just taking a look into Christian things. And when I say that Jesus rose from the dead, your natural instinct is to say, well, where's the proof? And if that's you, let me say again that if, if Jesus rose from the dead, there is nothing more important than to find out if it's true. Will you do what these people did and hear again? on this subject make it your priority to find out but verse 34 a few people became followers of Paul and believed Uh, other translations say they joined Paul and believed they joined him in trusting Jesus in turning back from rejecting God to receive this Jesus as their judge and saviour And you know, it may be that you're here this morning and you know in your heart of hearts that Jesus is who he said he was, but you also know that you've always kept him at arm's length. You've never really come back to him for forgiveness. Well, can I say today is the day God commands everyone, everywhere to repent. Will you come back to him? But listen, for all of us, This morning, living as we do in a sophisticated, multicultural, pluralist and post-Christian society, we see here the gospel that is preached to a society like ours. Paul reasserts the authority of God and refutes the arrogance of man. Paul preaches the fact that we've treated God shamefully and that Jesus Christ will judge us. And I wonder if that's a message that we are bold enough to proclaim in our day and age. Yes, that Jesus comes to offer us forgiveness, freedom, new life, meaning, purpose, all these wonderful blessings, but that there is nothing more important that friends and neighbours can do than look into the claim he rose from the dead, because he will judge. Are we willing to cross the pain line with people and talk to them about that? My prayer is that this week we would be those who see what Paul saw and who speak what Paul spoke. Let's pray that we would. I'll pray. Our Lord God, as we've prayed already in our confession, we're deeply sorry for the many and shameful ways that we've treated you in our lives. And yet we thank you for the confidence we can have that if we return to the judge, he will forgive us. We want to come back to him even today. And we pray that you would give us those eyes to see and that mouth to speak as Paul did to our friends and neighbours and colleagues and co-workers. In Jesus' name, amen.